Live from Liverpool, The Dark Paranormal, Season 14. Hello everyone and welcome back to The Dark Paranormal, Season 14, Episode 5. That's right, we've hit the midpoint of this season already. Now, first and foremost, let's address the elephant in the room. There was no minisode this week. Now, what's happened is the submitter of the minisode has asked me not to release the episode. Which was a big disappointment, not only for me, but also for you guys, because it was one hell of a story. And the episode was scheduled on all of the platforms to be released, which meant an extra piece of work for myself after already recording and editing it. And in truth, I'm not concerned about that part of it, because in truth, I signed up for this. I'm a full-time podcaster. But what I would appreciate is that if somebody sends in a submission... Please ensure two things. One, that it is your material that you're providing. And two, that you're completely happy for that material to be broadcast. It turns out the individual involved provided their experience because they wanted my opinion on it. Now, I'll be perfectly honest. If somebody's looking for an opinion on why something may be happening, I can give that. But it's not an expert opinion. So if anyone is thinking I'll reach out to Kevin, and we've had a few people do this, who believe that I have some magic book on how to rid yourself of evil spirits, I'm afraid I don't. I've said it many times before that I'm merely the conduit to put your paranormal experiences out into the world. And if you need any sort of guidance in this realm, I would suggest first and foremost to go to the head of whichever religion you practice. And if you're an atheist or non-denominational, then that doesn't matter because, let's think about it, you're providing an experience of you dealing with something in the paranormal sphere, something spiritual. So therefore, if you're not comfortable going to a religious aspect place, go to a spiritualist church. And yes, it does contain the word church, and yes, spiritualism is kind of a religion, but they will at the very least point you in the right direction of where you can seek help. All that said, if you simply want me and me alone to give you my opinion on your experience, please put that in the body of the email that you send. It just saves, such as in this case, hours of work on my behalf being wasted and your time being wasted, and we also lose an episode. As I say, if you just wish me to read your paranormal experience, then say so within the email, because I love the paranormal, and I want to collect as many experiences as possible. So please don't be put off if you're thinking about reaching out, but you don't want anything broadcast. By all means, do. I think it all comes down to the clarity of language used within the email that's submitted. So, anyway, let's move on. No mini-sode this week, but we are at the midpoint of season 14 and we have one hell of an experience to share with you today. There are certain emails, and they are very, very rare, that when I read through them in the middle of the day, I'm glancing over my shoulder as I do so. 
And this was one of those emails. This experience has stuck with me ever since receiving it about two months ago. It keeps popping back into my mind, whether I'm in the shower, and specifically when I'm looking in the bathroom mirror. And you'll understand why as we go into it. And no, it's not just something appearing behind you. Let me just say, in my opinion, it's one of the best midpoint experiences we've ever covered. Although I completely appreciate statements such as that are completely subjective and it's all down to personal taste. But let me know what you think. But before we start today's episode, I need to give a quick thank you to our wonderful team over at Patreon. When you sign up to our Patreon, not only do you receive each and every episode from the live feed way before everyone else and also ad-free, but you can also receive access to the Patreon-only podcast, Dark Bites. Dark Bites is a podcast where we take a look at the shorter experiences which have been sent our way, and it releases each and every Sunday of the year without fail even on the downtime between seasons, meaning you never miss your paranormal fix. But the best thing about Patreon is the community. We've built a wonderful community of like-minded paranormal enthusiasts over on Patreon, and we'd love to extend an exclusive invitation just for you. Simply head over to patreon.com forward slash thedarkparanormal just like the following wonderful new team members have. Addison Walker, Irish Wristwatch, Dakota Gutsk, Peyton Haynes, Lindsay Ben-Hadouch, Daniel Schneider, Katie, Cole Bradfield, Truthseeker, Jake Johnston, Mae Vallon, Nevin Phillips, Matty Weddington, Mackenzie Hitchcock, Tiffany Brooks, Cami Sandoval, Jamie Smith, Stephen McIntyre, Matty, Paula Turkleton, Maria Granger, Stephen Guzman, Holly Smith, Rodrigo Chacon-Perez, Lisa Banks, Brian Ambritz, Holden Dologonski, Keat Conrad, McKenzie, Hendricks, Maz, Rachel Fellman, and Lindsay Thomas. Thank you so much, guys. Your support truly means the world. And I hope you enjoy all the early ad-free releases and, of course, those Dark Bites episodes. Don't forget, if you'd like early ad-free access to all episodes and, of course, over 60 hours worth of Dark Bites episodes to binge, head over to patreon.com forward slash the dark paranormal. But right now, A few minutes later than I would have preferred, having given the Minnesota explanation, but hey, it is time. Lower those lights, make yourself comfortable, and of course, leave your disbelief at the door, as we hear all about a lesson in darkness. My name is Lisa, for this retelling anyway and I do wish to remain anonymous. Locations, universities, etc., they've all changed. I will say the university in question is one of the very few original red brick unis. By that, I mean one of the oldest UK institutions. Let me take you back to a chilly autumn evening in Durham. A place where, when I return, which I still do, the past feels like it's always whispering around the corner. I was teaching math at St. Cuthbert's University, not a real place. A place, in reality, as old and full of stories as the city itself. Picture high towers, 
ivy-covered red brick walls, hallways that echo. And I know they now echo with more than just footsteps. It's the kind of place you'd half expect a ghost to just pop out from behind a statue. So, there I was, packing up my office because of some big renovation. The higher-ups were shuffling us all around like pieces on a chessboard. And to say I and my colleagues were not enjoying it would be an understatement to say the least. I had boxes upon boxes, all filled with my academic clutter. Most of it was boring stuff. Papers, books, you know, typical math professor gear. Half of which I probably didn't need. Initially, the moving guys just duct tape every box. They put my initials on in Sharpie marker and then threw them all into a dusty storeroom. We were assured by the higher-ups that we all had our own space within this storeroom and when we were eventually moved to our new homes, we would find all of our boxes there. And then the day came where I would finally get my new class. And wow... This room was arguably smaller than the storeroom. I mean, my lessons did not have many students, but I knew of at least three classes I held which this room simply wouldn't work for. The university's answer? Bring in yet more single desks. Today, any health and safety team would be all over this, but this was the 90s. And uni still acted like we were under wartime conditions. Then my boxes were dropped off, and I almost had a panic attack. A colleague helped me get them all out of the room and into my car. They took up the entire class. There was no way I could store them in that little box room I'd been given. So I eventually got home took all of the boxes into the living room and laid everything out, trying to make some sense of what was in the boxes and desperately hoping I could bin the majority. I was overcome. So much so, I made a cuppa to calm myself down and I sat on the couch surveying the scene of papers in front of me and this was only two-thirds of the boxes I'd brought home. I glanced over at the remaining third of the boxes stacked in the corner, all red and white striped cardboard, except for one. That box wasn't mine. All of my stuff was in white and red cardboard flat packs. This was brown, deep corrugated card, and clearly years old. This box, as I grabbed it and lifted the lid, was like a little treasure chest of weirdness. There were old pamphlets. There were books about stuff like Rosicrucianism and witchcraft, tarot readings. These were all hand-typed, as in on a typewriter. But they had volume numbers, like someone had sat there and typed a number out for a group. Mixed in with some of the reading was some really out-there theoretical mathematics. 
It was like someone had been trying to mix mathematics with the supernatural. I thought as I sipped my drink, trying to find some magic in the numbers, maybe? I remember thinking it was just some old professor's hobby box, so I chucked it in with my stuff, thinking it would be good for a laugh with my flatmate Sarah when she got back. I'd tell her that I'd sorted everything I thought I needed and then I'd go and wait in the kitchen, while she inevitably came across all this weird garbage, and in turn think I was a crackpot. A lame prank, I know, but that was how me and Sarah were. We were like two peas in a pod. Both a bit nerdy, we both loved a good ghost story. We'd met at university and hit it off immediately, talking about local legends, hauntings, etc. And our flat was like our little sanctuary from the academic grind. Filled with comfy sofas, books and endless cups of tea and chat. Sarah was into history and had an infectious enthusiasm for anything old and mysterious. Many a night we sat up by candlelight drinking wine and telling each other legends that we'd heard, ghost stories that we'd heard or even unbelievable stories that we'd heard from around campus. So yes, this prank in itself was very lame, and it would last about five minutes, but that's how we operated. I heard Sarah come through the door, and I gave her the instruction, Oh Sarah, could you just have a look over those papers and see if anything jumps out as weird or stuff that shouldn't be there, you know, things I can bin. I haven't got time, she replied, grabbed her keys and left. Oh well? prank gone. Turns out she had a date. Oh well, lucky for some. What I didn't know was bringing that box home was going to turn both of our worlds upside down. You see, at first, it was just a few odd things here and there. Items misplaced, weird noises at night, shadows that seemed longer than they should be, and were a bit too quick to disappear. But as the days grew shorter and the nights grew longer, that's when things started to get seriously creepy. Whenever something weird would happen, Sarah would smile. She was from a small town in Yorkshire, and I believe her grandparents filled her with folklore and mystery. She was full of charm, and all of this combined probably explained her fascination with the supernatural. I always admired her ability to turn any mundane topic into an adventure. Our flat, a cosy two-bedroom, just a stone's throw from the university, was our little world where academia met the mystical. Going back to the boxes, I'd taken what I'd needed from the boxes and pushed the remainder in our airing cupboard, throwing a blanket over the top. One day I came home and Sarah was in the living room, surrounded by the boxes. Or should I say, my boxes were pushed to the side and the brown box, the old box, was directly in front of Sarah's crossed legs. 
Her eyes were wide as she was flicking through the type pages of one of the pamphlets. Her excitement was palpable. She was like a kid in a candy store, poring over each page with wide-eyed wonder. Have you read this? she said to me, shaking one of the pamphlets. I shook my head. I scanned through them. I can see they're all hand-typed. She shook her head. No, no, this one in particular. She lifted up a pamphlet on witchcraft. She said, it's like he's marked it. There's little circles around passages and small happy faces like a teacher would do. I walked over to look, and she was right. I was a bit sceptical, chuckling at the absurdity of it all. But Sarah was deeply serious. This one, she said, pointing at one of the circles, allegedly can turn you into a hare. She looked back at me with a very serious face. I think I best get the wine, I said. I came back in with a bottle of white wine and two glasses, and Sarah had took a position on the couch, cross-legged again, with the book still in hand. All right, give it a break now, Sass, I said. Sorry, she said, and she threw the pamphlet back in the brown box, before saying, Are you ever going to use any of that? I shook my head. Well, do you mind if I have it? Because I'm really interested. I shrugged. Yeah, of course. Anything to get rid of those bloody boxes. We spent the rest of the evening talking all about uni stuff, the possible origins of this mysterious box and its previous owner, suggesting maybe it belonged to some eccentric professor from the 60s. We laughed and we moved on to other topics. Before we knew it, it was 2am and we both headed for bed. Sarah turned back and lifted up the brown box under her arm and said, I'll be taking this with me. I nodded and laughed and said, please do. And we both went our separate ways. In the following weeks, I noticed subtle changes in Sarah. It started with her only reading the pamphlets from the box. I'd come home, she'd be reading one. I'd get up about four in the morning to go and get a drink from the kitchen and find her by candlelight reading one on the floor. Then she began becoming increasingly distant. Her usual bubbly demeanour was replaced by a quiet, introspective air. A kind of mix of aloofness, but with superiority. At first, I attributed it to stress. We were both swamped with work, and the dark, cold winter days didn't help. But then the weird occurrences started. It was small things at first. Strange sounds at night. Clicking sounds. A feeling of being watched. Fleeting shadows darting just out of sight. Well, I brushed it off as the usual quirks of an old building, but they were very similar to when I first brought the box home. Deep down, part of me couldn't shake the feeling that something was off. 
let's have a quick break to talk to you about Policy Genius. Now, we all like to put off life insurance talk because it reminds us of our mortality. But life insurance isn't about death, it's about life. It's about ensuring the lives of those you love remain secure and comfortable. And I'm sure many of you will think, well, I'm covered through work or I'm covered through my bank account. But believe me, you want to check those finer details because you may be surprised what you're actually covered for. And this is exactly where Policy Genius come into their own. Yes, we could talk about how Policy Genius is America's leading online insurance marketplace or how their award-winning agents will walk you step by step through the entire process. But the best thing about Policy Genius for me is they don't have a dog in the fight. They're not going to strong arm you towards one company or another. They've no incentive to do so. Their only incentive is to listen to your needs, scour America's top companies, and find you the best price. For example, with Policy Genius, you can find life insurance policies that begin at just $292 per year for $1 million of coverage. Some options even offer same day approval and avoid unnecessary medical exams. There's a reason why Policy Genius has thousands of five star reviews on Google and Trustpilot, and you'll find out what it is when you tick life insurance off your to do list with Policy Genius. So head over to policygenius.com or click the link in the description to get your free life insurance quotes and see how much you can save. That's policygenius.com. The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. When you visit Arizona, time is measured in moments, not minutes. Like the moment you see the Grand Canyon for the first time. Visit a new state of mind. Learn more at hereyouareaz.com. One evening, I came home to find Sarah in the living room, and the air was thick with tension. She looked up at me. Her eyes looked hollow, her voice barely above a whisper. Do you ever feel like these walls are alive? She asked. Well, that was an odd question, even for Sarah. I tried to laugh it off, but she wasn't coming with me. Her gaze was unsettling, seemingly fixated on something unseen, before following it towards the wall. I clicked my fingers. Earth calling Sarah. Hello, I said. That night I lay in bed. The silence of the flat punctuated by the occasional creak and groan of the building. I told myself it was all in my head, the product of too many ghost stories. But sleep eluded me, as I couldn't help but feel a growing sense of dread. Something had shifted in our home, something unexplainable and increasingly sinister. As winter turned into spring, it done nothing to change the atmosphere in the flat. It just grew heavier, charged with an unspoken tension. Sarah's fascination with the box's contents had grown into an obsession. She would spend 
every spare moment with those arcane books and pamphlets. Her once lively discussions about history replaced by a silent, intense focus. It was around this time the unexplained occurrences began to escalate. One night, whilst I was grading papers, a loud bang echoed from Sarah's room. It sounded like a heavy book had been dropped, but I ran in to check on her, and she was asleep. The room appeared untouched. I choked it up to the old pipes, or maybe a neighbour. Yet the sound was unnervingly distinct. It had definitely come from inside that room. A few days later, it happened again. We were both in the living room. Sarah, as usual, engrossed in one of the pamphlets. We heard a sharp bang ring out in the kitchen. We ran into the kitchen and found a cabinet wide open. All of its contents untouched. No windows were open. There was no logical reason. Sarah laughed it off. I wasn't in the mood for laughing. But then, out of the corner of my eye, I noticed her hands. And as she was giggling, her hands were shaking. The changes in Sarah became more pronounced. She started to withdraw from our usual activities, declining invitations to join colleagues for drinks, ignoring calls from friends. Her eyes began getting dark circles underneath them, as if she wasn't sleeping. Again, on occasion, I'd wake up in the night to go and get a drink from the kitchen. But when I would do so, Sarah wasn't reading by candlelight. She was stood a few inches from the furthest wall, mumbling to herself. I must admit, I was terrified. But in the light of day... I put it down to some type of sleepwalking. As I say, we were both under a hell of a lot of stress at the time. I tried to talk about it with her, but she'd just brush off my concerns, insisting she was fine, she didn't sleepwalk, and she was just caught up in her research. But this didn't feel like research anymore. It felt like these old texts were consuming her, pulling her into a world I just couldn't reach. Then, one evening, things took a much more sinister turn. We were sitting in the living room when a cold draft swept through the flat, despite all the windows and doors being closed. Sarah shivered, pulling her cardigan tighter round her, and that is when we heard it. A low, guttural growl coming from behind the door that led to the hallway. We both froze, our eyes meeting in a mix of fear and disbelief. There was no denying it this time. Something was very wrong. Eking out into the hall, we were greeted with nothing just a solitary light bulb swinging slowly as if something really tall had banged its head against it. 
The following week was a blur of sleepless nights and eerie encounters. Shadows seemed to move with a mind of their own, lingering in corners before darting away, getting ever braver. The air was filled with a sense of foreboding, as if we were being watched by unseen eyes. But it was the noises that were the most unsettling. Unexplained creaks, whispers in the dead of night, inexplicable bangs. It was like the sound of something trying to break through from the other side. And Sarah's behaviour became more erratic. She would have moments of clarity, where she would seem like her old self, joking and laughing. But these were fleeting, quickly replaced by a distant vacant expression. Then she started to speak in a language I didn't recognise. Her voice took on a strange, unnerving tone. I'd find her in odd places around the flat, stood in the dark, poking at things in the air I couldn't see. And every time I was there when she did this, she would smile and whisper to me, I think I've done it. Done what? I'd whisper back, terrified. She would slowly raise a finger to her smiling mouth and shush me. I'm still unsure if this was just the lights, but her pupils on these occasions always seemed jet black. It was during this time frame that I first experienced a genuine life-threatening fear. I woke up to a piercing scream. Running into Sarah's room, I found her crouched in the corner, her eyes wide with terror. She was staring at something above her, something I couldn't see. It's here, it's here, she whispered, her voice trembling. It's watching us. It was this moment that I knew we were dealing with something beyond our understanding, something potentially malevolent. Sarah and that box. I couldn't shake the feeling that she had somehow unleashed something dark and uncontrollable into our lives. The unsettling occurrences in our flat soon escalated from eerie to downright terrifying. The noises were more frequent and intense, no longer just bangs, but they were now accompanied with what sounded like muffled whispers, sinister laughter. The air would become thick with a sense of dread, a feeling we were not alone. Something else had made our home its home. One night, as we sat in the living room trying to watch a movie to distract ourselves, the television suddenly flickered and went to static. Sarah, who was sitting beside me, went rigid. Her eyes, usually full of life, were now blank and seemed to stir through the TV. Then, in a voice unlike her own, she began to speak in that same unrecognisable language. Her words rapid and chilling. I reached out to her, 
but she recoiled from my touch like she was in pain. The temperature in the room dropped drastically. I could see our breath turning to mist in the air. And then, as suddenly as it all started, the TV snapped back to normal. Sarah slumped forward as if released from an unseen grip. She had no memory of what just happened. Her confusion and fear mirroring my own. Sleep became elusive. I would lay awake at night, listening to the sounds of the flat. Every creak, every whisper magnifying my fear. Sarah's condition worsened. She would often wander round the flat at night, talking to herself, her eyes vacant. One morning I was getting ready for work, and I found her standing in the bathroom, staring at her own reflection, with a look of horror. It was like she didn't recognise who was looking back at her. She was stroking at her cheek, looking left and right, opening her mouth as if counting her teeth. Then she began flicking them. Then with her right hand, she pulled at her bottom lip really hard. She brought her other hand up to join in, like she was trying to rip it off. I shouted, Sarah! And she turned her head so slowly, it felt like a lifetime. I wanted to run, but I also wanted to keep my cool. She stared right through me, and I swear her eyes were black. Uh, Stop that! You'll hurt yourself, I said, and I immediately left for work. I began researching the phenomena we were experiencing, delving more into the paranormal, desperate for answers. The more I read, the more I became convinced that what we were dealing with was not of this world. It was as if that box, its contents, had awoken something. A presence. Something that had latched on to Sarah. It reached a point where I dreaded coming home. Our flat, once a place of warmth and laughter, was now oppressive, filled with a negative energy. Objects would move on their own, Doors would slam shut and the feeling of being watched was constant. Sarah's health declined. She barely ate. And her once vibrant personality was overshadowed by a constant state of fear and confusion. The climax of these terrifying events occurred one literal stormy night. The wind was howling outside the rain battering against the windows. And once again, I was awoken by a scream, louder and more agonising than any I'd heard before. I rushed to Sarah's room, my heart pounding, and there Sarah was, somehow stood on the at most two-inch thick headboard above her bed her back against the wall, her body rigid, her eyes rolled back, 
the room was ice cold. The air charged with a sinister force. I could feel it pressing against me, an oppressive force that seemed to be growing stronger. Sarah, I said. I reached my arm. Something slapped my hand away. I tried again. Sarah! It happened again, but it felt like a different hand. Like a group of invisible people were trying to keep me from Sarah. Then, as if responding to my presence, Sarah's body began to convulse violently. As it balanced on its heels, stuck to the back wall, her voice uttering phrases in that same eerie language. I shouted her name over and over again, trying to break through to her. But she was in the grip of something much darker and more powerful than I could imagine. Then, instantly, the room filled with a blinding light and a deafening roar-like noise filled the air. I covered my ears, cowering against the force of it. Then, just as suddenly as it had begun, it stopped. Sarah fell to the bed, unconscious but alive. The room returned to normal, but the scent of evil lingered. I sat there, body shaking, my gaze frozen on Sarah. I openly wept, not knowing what on earth to do. The morning after that terrifying night, the flat was eerily quiet. Sarah was asleep, looking more peaceful than she had in weeks. But that peace was deceptive. I knew we couldn't go on like this. We needed help. But who on earth would believe such an outlandish story? At first, I turned to my colleagues at the university, cautiously broaching the subject under the guise of hypothetical interest in the paranormal. Most were dismissive, offering logical explanations, stress, hallucinations, even suggesting we had a gas leak. But one, A Professor Hammond, a history professor, was intrigued. He listened intently, his eyes narrowing, even making notes as I recounted our experiences. Well, to me, he said, taking off his glasses, it sounds like you've awakened something. Belief systems be what they may, but I believe that old objects especially those with a history of esoteric practices, can carry a form of attachment. And he suggested I seek out someone with experience in these matters, someone who could offer more than academic speculation. And that's when I thought of Father Alistair, the university chaplain, a man of deep faith and understanding, He was known to be open-minded to spiritual matters, and surely, if anyone could help, it would be him. But I still approached Father Alistair with trepidation, aware of how absurd this all sounded. But to my surprise, he listened without judgment, his expression one of concern rather than disbelief. "'I have heard of such cases,' he said softly. 
it's very rare. But there are instances where entities can attach themselves to people or to objects. The church does have ways of dealing with these situations. And so, arrangements were made for Father Alistair to visit the flat. The days leading up to the visit were a blur of anxiety and hope. Sarah's condition remained unchanged, a mix of lucidity and unsettling episodes. I told her about Father Alistair's upcoming visit, and for a moment, a flicker of the old Sarah appeared in her eyes. Maybe this'll help, she whispered. The night before Father Alistair's visit, I could not sleep. The flat itself felt oppressive, like it was holding its own breath. I lay in bed, listening to the silence, when suddenly a soft whisper broke the stillness. I strained my ears, trying to make out the words, but it sounded like a plea. A distant voice carried on the wind. My heart started pounding and I forced myself to get up and check on Sarah. I found her asleep, her face calm, but something did catch my eye. On her bedside table was a beautiful golden necklace with a crucifix, one I had always admired and made no secrets of it. It was a gift from her grandmother, and Sarah never took it off. Seeing it there, removed, placed deliberately on a table, sent a chill down my spine. The next morning, I woke with a sense of purpose, because today we would get answers. Today, we might find a way to free Sarah from whatever has got hold of her. I prepared the flat, cleaning and organising, trying to make it feel normal, welcoming. As the time of Father Alistair's visit approached, I went to check on Sarah. Sarah! I opened her door. Her room was empty, her bed made. Confused, I searched the flat. Maybe she'd got up early, went for a run, I don't know. But I couldn't find her anywhere in the flat. Panic rising, I then noticed a note on the kitchen table, in Sarah's handwriting. Sorry, it began. It's all clear now. Must leave. I've done it. He, in block capitals, has come. My mind raced. Who was he? Was it the entity we'd encountered? And where had Sarah gone? The realisation hit me like a punch in the gut. She'd left. Taken by fear, or worse, by the entity itself. I sat there, the note in my hand, as the doorbell rang. Father Alistair had arrived. But Sarah, the very reason for the visit, was gone. In the wake of Sarah's disappearance, a heavy cloud hung over my life. Father Alistair insisted he would still conduct a blessing of the flat, and offered words of comfort, but they did little to ease my guilt 
and my fear. The university community searched for Sarah, but no trace of her was found. I even contacted the police, but as she was in her mid-twenties, had left a note, which, paranormal aside, could allude to a man, a fling, or a genuine need to escape, plus the fact she'd taken a bag of clothes, meant the police did not treat it with any urgency. But to me, it was like she'd vanished into thin air. I was left with a ton of unanswered questions. Had I inadvertently caused this by bringing that box into our home? Was there something I could have done differently to save my friend? The not knowing is the hardest part. It's a wound that still refuses to heal. Months passed and life at St. Cuthbert's went on. But for me, nothing was ever the same. I packed away that box and its contents. I took it back to the uni, and I sealed it in the storeroom, hoping to bury the memories along with it. Yet, I can never forget the image of Sarah, the sound of her voice, and I still have that final cryptic note. I sometimes catch myself looking over my shoulder, half expecting to see her. Her necklace with the crucifix remains in my jewellery box, and although I love it, in truth I am too scared to wear it, and I just keep it should she hopefully ever reappear. I know that may be a foolish thought given we're closing in on 35 years since this all happened, but I hope one day she does reappear. And at the very least, I hope she's okay. If I have any updates at all, I'll be sure to let you know. Or, should anyone listening suspect they may know who she is, even under an assumed name, please reach out to Kevin and the show, just so I can sleep better at night. Anonymous. Wow. Genuinely, wow. I have no other words. I have no theory or opinion on that experience. It left me flabbergasted. I've never really used that word and meant it. But today I do. That experience has left me flabbergasted. Now, as our anonymous writer says, if somebody has an inkling they may have ran into or met or talked with Sarah, in this case, please do reach out to the show and let us know. I have the details of the submitter and therefore can pass that information on. There are few experiences which, as a whole, freak me out. And this is one of them. So I'm just going to leave it there for now. But don't forget, if you'd like early access to all of our episodes plus a new Patreon episode each and every Sunday of the year, head over to patreon.com forward slash thedarkparanormal. In the meantime, I will speak to you again through next week for another minisode, and then of course we'll have episode 6 of season 14. For our Patreons, I'll speak to you again on Sunday for another instalment of Dark Bites, and for everyone, remember, when you're talking about the paranormal... Always try and leave some 
of your disbelief at the door. And I'll see you next time, right here on The Dark Paranormal. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.